Hello and welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep into the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. Available in video format at FunkinStuff.net and on YouTube, Truth and Rhythm can now also be enjoyed on the go in its audio podcast edition from FunkinStuff.net, iTunes, and other leading providers. I'm your host, Scott Dr. GX Goldfine, musicologist and also author of Everything is on the One, The First Guide to Funk. Get your copy at Amazon today. Whether you're watching or listening, I thank you very much for your support and interest. My guest today is Greg Boyer, one of popular music's most gifted and prominent trombonists, who is best known for his stellar horn contributions to Parliament, Funkadelic, and Prince. In addition to those kings of funk, he has worked with dozens of other known or other well-known artists, including Sheila E., Rootsie Collins, The Gap Man, Stanley Clark, George Duke, David Sanborn, Leonard Skinner, Kid Rock, and Buddy Guy. Funk, rock, jazz, blues, country, and more, Greg has all the stylistic bases covered. Greg, how you doing? So glad to have you here today. Doing great, man. Uh, I, I have to say this before we continue. There's one name that's left off of that list that I probably played with longer than anybody that I've worked with, and that was Chuck Brown. So, yeah, that's another story, too. Hopefully, we'll get into that later. But All right, yeah, yeah the go-go scene. We'll have to talk about that for sure. Thanks for adding uh, Chuck in there. Yeah. So um, before we get into our questions, I want to share a little bit more about your story as yeah. seen through my eyes, basically. But um, I got my first exposure to Greg on what was surely one of his very first professional gigs. Certainly, I'm sure, uh, his highest profile to that point. So when I was fortunate enough to catch P-Funk's so-called uh, so anti-tour at the Starwood in Hollywood, California with only about 300 people, the Funk Mob did a surprise concert with the Brides of Funkenstein opening, and it was mind-blowing. In fact, it's still one of the most amazing concerts I've ever seen, and I've seen hundreds. Um, <clears throat> I followed Greg's career with P-Funk and saw him perform probably at least 20 times in the 80s and 90s. <laughs> as, as if that wasn't enough, I was then ecstatic when he began playing with my other favorite artist, Prince, who I also saw Greg perform with many times. And again, I was there in 2002 for another one of my most amazing musical experiences, in which Greg made his band debut. It was part of Prince and the New Power Generation doing three shows in one day in Hollywood, California. The musical extravaganza ended in the wee hours of the morning at Sunset Boulevard's House of Blues, where I struggled to keep my exhausted but blissful wife upright at like about two or three in the morning. But not only has Greg's trombone playing always been on the money and so, so funky and soulful, but his energetic style and stage presence further enhanced the total entertainment package to make what I think is a true original. Coming up, we'll find out how Greg developed his sound and style Go behind the scenes of studio and stage time with P-Funk and Prince. Talk about his work with other great artists like Chuck Brown. And get caught up with what he's up to today. So with that intro, Greg, are, are you ready to get into some actual questions? Let's do this. <laughs> All right. So we're going to start way back and uh, you know talk a little bit about your upbringing. Uh, where were you from? How and when did you get into music? I know you played a lot of other instruments, and some folks may not know that. 
But yeah. talk a little bit about that and, and get us up to maybe, you know, when you were, you know, in high school or thereabouts. Well, uh, I was exposed to a lot of music at an early age. My parents had an extensive album collection, about 99 and three quarters percent jazz. And my older brother was a huge James Brown fan. And my sister and my cousins were big on Motown. And all of my mom's aunts were sort of Memphis soul fanatics. So I was getting it from all directions. And one of the things I like to mention about being a kid back then is, and it's not so much now, is it's just so much music swirling around. I mean, you had live bands on, you know, on TV, and and not so much, you know, the, the small, you know, seven to eight piece orchestras you might find on a Jimmy Kimmel or something like that, but big bands and, you know, a hot session, you know, guys from L.A. or New York playing big band jazz as the backdrop for a lot of the talk shows that you had um, black and white stuff. You had uh, Lucy and Ricky and the the. The, the, the Cuban jazz thing that was jumping off at the time. And you had bands in schools. You had bands playing in houses. You know, there was a band across the street from me. And they were, they weren't good. You know, my mom likened them to sounding like cops and robbers. <laughs> I said to myself, I want to grow up and learn how to play an instrument so I can go over there and show those guys how to play the horse the right way. <laughs> and I guess, you know, that's just something that I just gravitated to strongly. It was inevitable that I'd be playing something. And I started playing alto saxophone at age 10. And by the time I graduated from high school, I had gone through every instrument in the band room. Um, borrowing people's instruments, taking them home, learn how to play them in one night, and then take them back the next day and put them in the band room closet before they knew it. And in a lot of instances, repaired, you know, the springs missing. I put the springs back on the clarinets. I bend the trombone slide straight. So I was able to break code on not just playing them, but, you know, how they mechanically worked. And that was my upbringing. I was just musical instrument curious from almost day one. Well, you know, I, I actually began playing alto sax too around that same age, 10. Wow. I played up through middle school. And, and my son now, who's 12, he's now playing alto sax. Okay. Yeah. He's an honest then. <laughs> yeah. But you know what? Uh, at the time when I got an alto sax, it was either that or trombone because uh, you know, they had too many of the other players. Yeah. And so at that time, uh, to me, trombone didn't seem like a lead instrument, but little did I know in your hands or the hands of Fred Wesley or, you know, Wayne Henderson or these guys, it can be a great lead instrument. Yeah. And any instrument can really, you know, it is what personality you put into it you know, determines what comes out of the, the, the bell end of the instrument or, you know, that's, I guess, applying to a horn or something, but whatever it is, I mean, even upright is, you know, the, the likes of a Christian McBride might show you, 
can be an out front and you know a, a very focal instrument so yeah i mean um, yeah go ahead <laughs> so, so when how old were you when you moved to the trombone and how did that progress um i started playing trombone about 13 or 14 because i was watching rusty mckeon and jeff davis playing this song called cabin john and it irked me to no end that every time they would get to the A, they would play the A flat. And I was like, no, no, no. If you look at the key signatures, an A natural. And that's the other thing, too. You know, I didn't know perfect pitch was special. You know, I just thought anybody could do that, right? But, you know, I found out later on that I had it. And I'm like, oh, okay. Now, well, what do we learn how to play next? It just wasn't exciting to me. I was just like, so what? But, uh, but they would play that thing natural every day. So I said to myself, I'm going to teach myself how to play trombone so I can play that A natural or at least let them know second position, second position, because it was driving me bonkers. And that might have been the fuel for me learning how to play all of those instruments. It was just that, you know, I, I guess I had like a foghorn leghorn complex, you know, you're doing it all wrong, see? <laughs> and that's what, I, that's what got me playing trombone. I must have, no, I must have been about 13 in it because I was still in middle school. But that's what got me uh, started on trombone, or at least interested. Well, perfect pitch. You know, that's something I've always dreamed of having myself. It seemed like something that just is such a gift. But I guess in a way, you know, it could be a little bit of a curse too because you're so sensitive to, you know, intonation and that sort of thing. I mean, how is well, it having that? That's here's my theory on perfect pitch. I liken it to having a really good memory. And uh, I'll give you an example. If you go to piano and play in the A, boom, you know, you could sing that note right there as you're standing there. But if I went to the piano, play the A, and you went and had lunch and, and checked the mail and then came back and, and I'd ask you to sing that note, would you still remember? There's a good chance that, you know, if you had a decent memory, you would remember that note. And it, it's not just that, but stuff like, for me, um, childhood phone numbers, birthdays and area codes and stuff just like stick to my mind. So, um, you know, it's attributed to a memory of some kind. And as I'm getting older and more forgetful, I notice that my perfect pitch is starting to slip too. So mm -hmm. I, I, my theory is perfect pitch is somehow tied to memory more so than it is your ear. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. So, um, all right, so you get into trombone heavily and you're getting into high school and um, – who are some of your other, you know, inspirations or heroes around the time of high school? We actually, um, off air, we mentioned Jimmy Brown from Brick, who I just uh, spoke to recently. Who are some of your, you know, inspirations in that regard? Well, Jimmy Brown, it, because he was a multi-instrumentalist. You know, you don't usually see people go from brass to reeds with that much ease that, that he does. And it was always like something that, wow, you know, I, I really, well, I wouldn't really love to do that. I'd like to do that as good as he did. 
but as I got older and I started playing one instrument more than the other, I realized that I have a, my chops set a certain way. It kind of prevents me from going back and forth the way I used to. But I still have the, the mechanical knowledge of it, which kind of helps me arranging, you know, for a horn section or something. But Jimmy Brown, definitely. And I think Gene Ammons and Groove Holmes, Richard Groove Holmes, uh, tenor player and uh, a B3 player, respectively, because my mom and my brother had this thing grooving with Jug, and they must have worn a hole in several copies of that, that album, and featured a, a, a live rendition of Willow Weep for me that just was one of those tunes that as I grew up, I never got away from that. And, and my mom was an organ jazz kind of person, so it didn't stop with Groove Holmes. It went with Jimmy Smith, McGriff, uh, Ruben Wilson, uh, Jack McDuff, and just so forth and so on. And I, I think that's probably the, the the stuff that I was most exposed to coming up, because you know it was like soul jazz, I guess you could call it. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't that real heady, straight ahead stuff. And, you know, with the ham and it kind of like had a churchy feel to it. And then, you know, those guys were just like, you know, let's add a little groove to this and, you know, make it a little bit more popular and make some money out of this. You know, you know, we got bills, too. So, <laughs> And my sister introduced me to Hendrix. And, of course, my brother, as I mentioned earlier, was big on James Brown. So, you know. I guess between the three of those, that pretty much was, you know, where I got most of my influences from. So I think, uh, Greg, at the time you were uh, in college, right? Um, Shifting forward a little bit. And I'm not sure if you're majoring in music or what, but um, you were, okay. So I was a tuba major. (laughs) A tuba major, wow. How how many tuba majors were there? Um, no, I was the only one. Uh-huh. I was the only one at the time. They, uh, it was St. Mary's College uh, before it became that school that you just can't get into these days. In Southern Maryland, it's like a top-ranked liberal arts college for like years now, you know, easily in the top 10. And they had, at the time, an incredible music program. It is just really starting to get off the ground. And and we were part of it. Myself, uh, Benny Cowan, um, Scott Taylor, who joined P-Funk after I left. Um, you know, there's just a lot of guys that came out of that, um, that school. Great, great musicians, great music program. We would... Um, yeah, I was playing in that band in the college jazz ensemble since I was a junior in high school. You know, they would take high school students that they thought could hang with all of that and and let them, you know, play in the band. And that's why I got my first exposure to going on tour because, you know, we would go around and do these recruitment tours and concerts as far south as Florida and as far west as Kansas. So getting around a little bit. That must have been a blast. 
Yeah. Yeah, it was. So you're, you know, doing your tuba thing and, uh, and, you know, yeah, I was, I was playing your jobs and your, your I was playing on campus and playing trombone off campus. Uh, yeah. So you get a call somehow you get connected in some kind of way with the mothership with p-funk um you know i alluded to in the intro uh playing that show in 1978 so if you could step me through how that all came to, to be and what that was like for a, a college-aged uh, greg boyer yeah well after three semesters i realized that i was wasting my parents money going to school and not waking up and going to class i would only go to like the music classes and and I wasn't given any respect to the other subjects. And I quit school in December of 77. And, and Benny Cowan, who was two and a half semesters in, he quit at the same time. And we just had it in our heads that, you know, we're down here beating the pavement, playing all of this stuff down here at college. Why don't we just go out and leave and make some, a few things happen on our own? Because just a couple of weeks before, we were riding around Philly and New York, you know, posing as writers and rangers. You know, I had my little beat up briefcase and trying to impress the likes of, uh, you know, Gambling Huff, Eddie Kendricks. Uh, and we were just, you know, out there trying to say, we can do this too. We can hang with the big boys. And so I had it in my mind I was going to do that. So I quit school in December of 77. And we hooked up with Greg Thomas, Benny and I, because there was this project, you know, this uh, band called. Uh... <laughs> Coincidence, I'm sure. Yes. And they were supposed to be doing something and Boosie was supposed to come in and produce them. And we were rehearsing like, you know, three or four times a week and the band sounds good we're getting tight and for whatever reason it just petered out and not long after that skeet rodney skeet curtis who was already in p-funk at the time they had a shake-up and they needed a horn section so he called greg uh his old band mate, bandmate from uh band uncle remus that produced the likes of uh gary hudge on keys and Kevin Oliver on guitar, and Dennis Chambers on drums. They played together in high school. So Skeet called Greg and said, get a horn section together. So Greg was like, hey, I've been playing with these two guys for like a couple of weeks, and they're pretty good. So I'll bring them on down. And we went and auditioned for P-Funk in February, and they sent us plane tickets in March, March 9th, 1978. Not only was it my first, well, the first gig was the 10th, but that was, you know, going out. That was my first day out with P-Funk, but it was also my first flight. So, <laughs> wow. yeah, I'm a country kid, man. You know, I looked up at planes. I never was on one. <laughs> and that's how it all started. And there we are as green as, I don't know what, you know, going out there and I'm, you know, just all nervous and everything. And I go over there and I said, that's George Clinton. That's the guy that, you know, I used to make like I was Pedro Bell and I draw these little fake album covers and T-shirts and things when I was in high school. And I went over there and shook his hand and he was a normal person. 
And what I learned from that moment was you don't have to be starstruck. All of these people bleed and cry and sleep and eat just like the rest of us. They put their pants on one leg at a time. There's nothing super about these guys. They just have nice jobs and recognition. And shook George's hand. He said, hey, good to meet you. And that was the beginning of a 19-year working relationship. Well, so who did you exactly audition for when you did that audition? We had to learn the album Funkintelliki versus Placebo Syndrome, all of those horn parts. And then we had to learn the hits, you know, Tear the Roof Off and, and you know, all of that stuff that was very much a part of the show. And we went to a hotel in Baltimore and they were in there rehearsing. And it's like, I'm looking at all my heroes and, and they are not in their rock star splendor at all. They just they're wearing their lounge around stuff, you know, using sticks, banging on the bed. And that was the drummer. The guitars were unplugged. And there were a bunch of people uh, sitting around singing. They had a lot of background vocals. Of course, they had Parlette and Brides out at the time. And where the horn parts were needed, we would just stick them in there and stuff. And they're like, hey, them guys are not bad. So that's how that all started. And then we just eventually just went out there on the road with very little rehearsal and did the rest of the tour. So what was that first year like? I mean, it must have been um, kind of grueling, I'm imagining, because they did those long shows. And sometimes I think you would play with the opening act, too. What was that like? Um, the shows weren't that long. Then. They're not. They weren't those three and four hour shows they became known for later. You know, they probably max out at two hours and, and, and that's on a long night. But it was just so much going on. You know, they packed a lot into those two hours. Plus, you know, I was like 19 or 20 years old. I didn't get tired. <laughs> and it, I wouldn't call it grueling but it, it, it was taxing and I didn't realize it until I got home. You know, I'm out there on the road, just stuff, and I don't want to come home because, you know, you're meeting people and stuff. And, and then it's like, wait a minute, I'm stuck in Texas. <laughs> and I take a bus home, not realizing if I had just gone to the next city, I had a plane ticket waiting on me. So, you know, I was already a little kid, but I lost 10 pounds on that first tour. You know, I looked like a, a charms pop when I got home. <laughs> and if I learned anything, it's just like, yeah, you're young and enthusiastic and everything, but you still have to take a little bit better care of yourself than that. And, you know, eat every once in a while. Mm -hmm. you know, sleep a little bit. And learn that first tour and everything else is just like wow i can't believe i'm in so-and-so and i don't believe this is happening it was like rock star 101 <laughs> and, and um it, it's not the kind of thing they're going to teach you with berkeley or any school you know that's you know one of those hard knocks lessons but it was very very eye-opening i will say that you know for lack of a better term was, was there anyone in particular that sort of took you under their wing a little bit? 
I think collectively they might have. There was no one person, but you know, collectively they're like, you know, these are kids out here now because a lot of the guys in the band were our age when they first started out. I mean, you know, Boogie was in his early teens and, and Gary Schotter also. Uh, Eddie Hazel might have been a teenager when he started. And, 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 you know, all these guys started out very young. So they looked at us like, you know, one, a, a while ago, that was us. And so they, they, they kind of looked up, but then they also gave us some room hang ourselves when we had to because it wasn't like we were doing anything deadly you know it was nothing that was like was going to challenge my mortality but it was just kind of thing where okay you bump your head and now you know that when you push your forehead against a brick wall it produces a knot don't do that again <laughs> it was that kind of thing so literally a school of hard knocks yeah school of hard knocks literally and figuratively was there anything uh greg early on that you know seemed to be a particularly complex or challenging uh song or part to reproduce no no the the, the stuff wasn't hard to reproduce note for note line for line it, i guess the only challenge was to make it as funky as everybody else was because you know, if you come out of a jazz world, it helps. You know, if you come out of a, a church environment, it helps. But to really be funky, you can't just listen to them. You got to latch on to whatever feeling they produce or, or, or manufacture at the time. Or you just stand there and getting left behind. You know, you're like the guy hanging on the back of a garbage truck. <laughs> Just feet wailing in the wind, and all you have is just your grip to keep you from rolling down the street. And they, I guess, they really made that a point for us as a horn section, even individually, and said, Look, we're Parliament Funkadelic, we're famous for this. You know, listen to it, learn it, inhale it latch on to it and become part of it, you know, from the outside in to the inside out. And they didn't really have to use any words to convey that. You just knew once you fell right in the groove, it's like, oh, this is what they were talking about. Let me do this more often. Did you try to, uh, or was there a call to vary the parts much from what, you know, Maceo and Fred and, and Rick and, of those guys had done on those tracks um or was it like where maybe at first you played it kind of wrote the way they did it and then as you got more comfortable and they trusted you more you kind of varied it a little yeah it was, it was very much that i mean it, it's p-funk so there's a, a a legacy factor involved you know you want to respect the music but george had a knack for picking people that respected the music but they also brought a little something you know to the party on their own so the horn section started to develop its dna a lot more maybe two or three years in to um being out on the road and then after a while it just became 
okay, these guys are not to be confused with Fred Maceo, are not to be confused with um, with um, Daryl Dixon and that crew. It, they're just a different horn section. And we made it very plain that, you know, once we got a taste of what that was like, it was like, okay, all bets are off. And we just kept developing, kept pushing the envelope of what a horn section was supposed to do within the confines of playing with um, P-Funk. Did they let you take your solo spots right out of the gate or did you kind of have to so, you know, earn it, so to speak? And also, um, you know, your style is much more kind of out there and energetic than uh, Benny or, or Greg. Um, was that something you had right out of the get-go? Is that just, that come naturally? And how did that evolve? Um, it's just, you know, every minute I played music up until that point formed that. And it wasn't just the music aspect of it, but, you know, the entertainment aspect. Because, you know, I'm out on the road with some of the most entertaining stage present people in the business, in the likes of a George Clinton or a Gary Scheider, and list goes on. So I just took what I learned and, and you know before i got there and the stuff and i learned after i got there and just applied it and george was one of those people that if you feel like you want to step up in and, and and showcase what you got i'm not going to stop you you know i'll let you go out there for as long as you want and if i feel like you're hanging yourself i'll call you back but that didn't happen a lot because the band was just so great it was just you know it was ringers on every instrument or every microphone and so, yeah, he just lets you stretch out. I mean, if you're feeling it, go ahead. And that was his mantra and is probably, I'm thinking it still is now. I haven't seen a band in a while, but I've seen video clips. But George is not one to sit there and say, you know, it must be this way, it must be that way. He's not a rigid band leader, not in any uh, st stretch of the vocabulary, so. It's a good place to be in if you felt like you wanted to grow and, you know, and, and as I like to say, smell yourself. <laughs> so what about some of those other characters? I mean, obviously, they were all, you know, amazing musicians. And who are some of the characters that stood out in particular from, from, from the band and, and why at that time? Um, well... Gary Scheider for obvious reasons. I mean, the guy is, first off, he's an incredible vocalist. Probably, you know, you're going to get an argument, but, you know, if he wasn't the best vocalist a band ever had, he was damn near close to it. You know, you're going to have, um, you know, people talk about Gary, they talk about Glenn Goins, but then, you know, you can't discount Fuzzy Haskins, and you can't discount Steve Boyd, and you know you can't write off a, a Belita Woods, and then Ray Davis, you know the guy that made singing bass sound so effortless, but the guy just had bottom like nobody else. You know, it's just all over the place. These these were bona fide musicians, and but it's hard to say if 
who stood out. I mean, <laughs> was anyone sort of more of a character, you know, off stage? And they were all characters off stage. <laughs> <laughs> they all were, you know, even the laid back and, and, and sullen people were, they were just, they made that seem like uh, an over the top persona and they're not really doing anything. It's, it's like Eeyore or something. It's like, oh, well, all right. And it, even that seemed over the top. But I remember the Atomic Dog Tour in particular. And, and Maceo and I laugh about this now because it's like we spent every day, every waking moment trying to make each other laugh. So, of course, everybody was, you know, was you know, their game was peaking that year because it's like, okay, if this person is funny now, I have to be funny the next minute. We literally spent every day trying to make somebody laugh to where they would just stop whatever they were doing. And it was a badge of honor to make somebody laugh so hard that they stopped playing. And well, Greg, was that part of the tour where uh, you went to the Beverly Theater? I was at that show. Yes, that's the same. That's the same tour. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we was... we were on fire. I think uh, Ron Brembry called that the body bag tour. <laughs> we were just killing everybody and everything that time, and it was like it was. You know, it, it was something to, to stick your chest out about was being in that band. It was a sense of pride and a, a sense of accomplishment. And, you know, the musicianship was just at such a high level. And it, I guess, you know, it could be a good thing or a bad thing, but it, it set the yardstick for everything else that followed after that. You know, it's like, okay, I'm doing so-and-so, I'm doing this and that. How does it compare to that band? And oh, we were just loaded, 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 loaded. And, you know, the, the duo of Skeet and Dennis, Horns were on fire. The band was scaled down, was very efficient. And, you know, we were one of those bands where at the time, you know, rock stars would come see you and stuff. It's like, you know, those Hollywoodies and stuff, that was the place to be. You got to go see P-Funk. And, and get your photo op with George or whatever, you know, much like, you know, hard to say who does that or what does that now, but back then it was, it was the place to be. Matter when of fact, actually, I'm, I remember I'm on that show, that show too, they had um, all three guitar players. They had Mike and Eddie and uh, Blackbird. Yeah. Plus, of course, Gary. Um, and then Bootsy came out too. I mean, it was an incredible show. Yeah, it was, you know, pulled out all the stops, man. And, and and I was saying a second ago, that's where I met Prince, was at the Beverly Theater. You know, he was back there, hide, you know, not I won't say hiding. He was just standing behind the curtain. It wasn't like he was hiding, peeking out, but he was standing back there absorbing everything. And as being in a horn section, we had like a direct line to him because he just happened to be standing right by us. We were kind of like in the corner up on the riser. And, and I nodded, I said, how's it going, man? He said, nah, you know, just not 
much to say. He's just, hello, you know, that's it. And we went on by, and that was it. And I think he remembered that when I got in the band years later. Now, I'm almost certain he did. That guy didn't forget anything. But I, I didn't notice him there at that show, um, unfortunately. But, um, but rumor has it that after that show, he went and did Erotic City. Do you think there's truth to that? Um, maybe. I mean, Erotic City came out quite a few years later. But, you know, if you know anything about Prince and his fault, he could have recorded it then and didn't do anything with it until later. But, but he didn't make a big stink out of being at the concert. He was just there strictly to listen, and he heard a lot. 